0: And welcome aboard the Giddy Carousel of Pop A podcast all about the hip and happening top pop mag smash-its and What we do is take an old issue, usually from the 80s Although it may slide a year or two either side of that And have a good poke around its pages with a guest Who could be a pop kid or someone who worked on the mag I'm Simon Galloway And oh look, he's fresh, he's exciting It's Mr Gavin Hogg As always, howdy doody <laughs> How you doing? Alright mate, how are you? A, a, a little bit hot. I've had my headphones on for a while. I've got sweaty ears, <laughs> Oh, I'm sure you didn't, really didn't
1: need to know that. It's a bit warm tonight, <laughs> isn't
0: it? So it's a little bit of a, a humid evening. Um, so you've got a few um, hellos and shout-outs garnered from our new Twitter followers.
1: I do, yeah. We've, uh, we've suddenly got quite a few new Twitter followers, so I'm going to say hello to some of our lovely people. We've got uh, Laura K. Kelly, Tiny Tina, Tiny, Tiny Tina. Sorry, Tiny Tina. That's English, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Who else we got here? Mr. Mansfield Dave. Plastic Letters O. Becky25390951. Catchy. Queen of the 80s. The LRM, who's uh, Dr. Morag Rose. We've got a doctor following us. That's good, isn't it? Uh, Miranda Sawyer. The lovely Miranda Sawyer. Blimey. Uh, An ex-Smashita. Who else we got? Sarah B. Uh, used to work for Melody Maker, Simon Harper at One's Harper, and Chris Shaw from I Am The Eggpod. Oh, and, hello, Chris. Uh, hello, Chris. And Alan Jenkins, 96. That's just a few of our hundreds and thousands of recent followers. Well, probably about 30. But you know. well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to big it up, si, trying to make yeah. it sound more exciting.
0: Um, well,
1: thank you all for, for
0: following us and everyone else who, who we've not mentioned as well. It's uh, good to have you on board the carousel. And now it's time to welcome our guest onto the carousel. So hold on to your hats. It's author and broadcaster Julie Hannell. Hi, guys. Yay. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, Julie. How are you doing?
2: Very good. Hello, Gavin. Hello, Simon.
0: So, uh, the issue of uh, hits that we'll be looking at on this occasion is from the 9th to the 22nd of October 1985. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that thanks to a couple of amazing websites Brian McCloskey's Like Punk Never Happened and Smash Hits Remembered. You'll find Find links to the scans of this issue in the show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this thrill-packed issue of the mag. And you'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog and over on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Just search for the Giddy Carousel Pop or at GiddypopPod. We've we've tried to think of everything here. Now before we clamber aboard the carousel, let's set the scene and find out what each of us was up to in October 1985. Julie, what were you doing back then?
2: October 1985, I was in second year of high school, so I was 13, about to turn 14 in December. And this was really a very important time for me musically because I had just seen the Smiths the month before in September 1985, and that sort of woke me up to you know, live music and the band and what I was going to be into. Uh, i i was also into bands like the Jesus and Mary chain, Echo and the Bunny Men, The Mission um and coming into kind of maybe a year from now 86 87 becoming a a real goth sort of a, a embracing, you know, that black heart that you need when you're a teenager um I had a a great group of friends in in secondary school and they were all into different bands. So one was into Simple Minds, one was into U2, one was into Wham, one into Duran Duran, one into Spandau Ballet, um, and then one eventually into New Kids on the Block. So we had a full 80s gamut and myself into the Smiths. So we would go around writing on bags and, and I had a little bit of disposable income. Because I had a paper round that I inherited from my brother, which I hated and detested because the papers were really heavy and I'm quite a small girl, but it paid really well. So I had would get like £6 a week salary and then usually £4 in tips. So I would take that £6 up to the Halifax. And do you remember the Halifax books and you would hand them over if you were putting money in and they would put them inside a printing machine and kind of print them flat. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that really satisfying noise, where you knew your cash was going in. And then the £4, I would take just a couple of doors up to John Menzies, to Woolworths, and then to WH Smiths to look at all magazines, Uh, all music magazines, all uh, record shelves, all top 40, everything to see what I was going to buy. And then I would go up to the cafe at the top of Airdre's and Benini's and buy myself a pineapple fritter for 22p, sometimes sometimes a banana fritter with usually (laughs) uh, a copy of Smash Hits and some kind of record like a, a Lloyd Cole tape or something like that. And I would read it. And what's really interesting about this issue, which you come on to talk about, is that it is one that I owned and that was on my bedroom wall.
0: <laughs> um, so when, when did you first encounter Smash It? When did that first come into your life?
2: I would say it was about about that year, actually, um, because I was, let's say, 13 going on 14. So I was discovering, at the same time as I was really... I, I grew up on a lot of music, a wide variety of music, Um, You know, from my parents, they had they had everything from like Queen to uh, the Eagles to the Supremes. My dad was in a record club, Broxy music, everything really great, a great gamut of LPs. So I discovered smash hits uh, around the same time as I I really started getting heavily into music. And that was this period I was very keen to put my stamp onto something to express my individuality. And I like smash hits. Mostly because two reasons. One, it was quite sarcastic and I was becoming the writing and it was quite sarcastic. And I was thinking that I was getting, you know, a little bit sarcastic at that age as well. You know, like the way that it kind of smash hits would like break the fourth wall and go A readers and stuff like that. And I'd be like, oh, that's me. (laughs) And um, also, um, God, what was the other reason I liked? Oh yeah, the lyrics. They printed the lyrics in there and the lyrics were like so important for me to learn. As soon as I would buy a new tape or album, usually it would be a tape. And at that point in my life, I remember very vividly, I had 22 albums. I had 22 tapes and I had decided not only was I into the Smiths, but I was into tapes. So when this came out and I did like Dead or Alive as well. I mean, who didn't? But when this came out, I just I couldn't believe it. before that, I had been reading it mostly for lyrics and also for taking out posters and for the reviews, the singles reviews, which um, Tom Hibbert used to do, and I, I ended up detesting him <laughs> as a teenage reader. Why? Who did he? Who did he slag off, Julie? What did he do? Uh, I, well, I kept a scrapbook, as you know, all geeks do, and um, Tom Hibbert. Uh, whenever a Smiths uh, track used to come out, I would like for so, so if a new Smiths single was coming out, I remember that joke isn't funny anymore came out. And I rushed to, um, to to see what the reviews were and I forgot to his and it was a small paragraph, a tiny paragraph, about an inch. And it was just like, I, ca- I can't remember specifically what he said. I only remember that I cut out this tiny paragraph, stuck it in the scrapbook and spent a lot of time colouring around it and decorating it in bubbles and arrows and writing, Tom Hibbert obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> All around, <laughs> all around the outside of it, and then going over that pen in different coloured yeah. pens, so that each letter was a different colour. Because I had a magic pen. Do you remember the magic yeah, felt yeah. tip that you would say you would draw, say a T in blue, and then you would go over it in the magic pen, and it would change it to purple or something like that. So, yeah, a lot of detail there in that in the hatred.
1: Wow, that is deep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tom. <laughs>
1: That's probably the re- the reaction that he wanted.
2: Yes. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think he might have said, I like your passion.
1: I think it was good that it meant so much to you, you know.
2: Yeah, it did, because I spent... A- I was kind of an oddball at school. I have friends, but... Nobody else liked the Smiths at my age. I was very young to like the Smiths. So, so when I went to see them the month before, I had to go with the six years who agreed to take me. They agreed to take me to the door to see that I got in and then I was on my own. And then they would meet me again at the end. So I, I, didn't, I didn't care. I mean, when you're 13, you don't, you don't, I didn't feel any fear. I went into Glasgow from Airdrie, on the train with the six years, I had my Smiths t-shirt on, I had my hair It was it was kind of quiffed up at the front and long at the back because I wanted to keep that feminine side, but also identify that I was a big Morrissey fan and uh, therefore it was a mullet (laughs) and um, (laughs) but it wasn't a mullet, if you ask. So I just couldn't wait to get into that gig and I got in and actually I couldn't see a thing. I was at the back and I didn't realise, you know, the whole place was swaying in the barrel and. I couldn't see, but I could I could just vaguely see Morrissey and Johnny Marr coming on the stage thinking that my heart was going to explode. I just couldn't. It was a real moment for me and there was a big tall guy beside me and he said, he looked down and he said, can you see? And I said, no, not really. And he said, come on up. And he lifted me up, he put me on his shoulders and... I, I got to see. I know. <laughs> you take your chances. Uh, I got. <laughs> <laughs> I got to see the whole gig from. I mean, I was as light as a feather. I got to see the whole gig, from sh- and I had that instamatic camera that had the flashes that you stuck on the top, and I had button-
1: oh yeah, I remember
2: br- bracelets all down my arms and Smith's t-shirt and all that. Anyway, I was quite near the back and I was holding up the camera, taking pictures and I just I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, like my heart wasn't even in my body that I was actually seeing this band that I was completely in love with and I spent a lot of time at school defending them mm. because people attacked them constantly. You know, did you see that weirdo on top of the pops? Like, you just don't understand him. You know, like really, really like, you know, you're just too immature. You know, like everybody slagged off the Smiths at my age. They were just not cool at all retrospectively, very cool. Older kids, very cool. In second year, not cool at all. So um, I got to see the gig and then I got the photos developed and there were some pictures of Morrissey and um, I, I still got them somewhere and um, kept them. In, they, they went into the same scrapbook, that the Tom Hibbert scrapbook. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, basically um, after that, I began to become just obsessively, you know, completely taping everything that they were on, learning all the words to every song, trying to understand the meaning behind each song. So I had these photographs and that was kind of the birth of my love of the Smiths, which is, you know, I still go and see Morrissey now to try and recreate that high. I still (laughs) get that high but just before he comes on stage, it's like, I'm 13 again every time, you know, every single time. I get really excited. I'm not on anyone's shoulders. But anyway, years later, about 30 years later, this gig, Glasgow Barrowland, September the Smiths, 1985, emerged on YouTube. And I was watching it and I just couldn't believe it. And I was like, I think I might be on this somewhere. And because I was on somebody's shoulders and everybody else was tall... There weren't really that many people on shoulders. So actually, if you watch the YouTube, I'm there and you can see me at the <laughs> back and you can see all the bangles down my arm and you can see me my camera. That's amazing. You know, the, the, the whole weird parallel of my life now that I interviewed these people that were my heroes and how passionate I felt then as a 13, 14 year old in music is very strange. You couldn't write it.
0: Tell me, when at the end of the gig, can you remember, did you have dead legs from sitting on that guy's shoulders all night?
2: <laughs> I did not have dead legs, but I'll tell you what happened at the end of that gig, right? Oh, God. No, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I got outside and um, I was so high. And, of course, the, the, the it was my first concert and it was the Smiths. So it was amazing. It was an amazing gig. And of course, all the, the guys out, outside with the T-shirts on the ground, the posters on the ground, you know, like, what do you want to buy? What do you want to buy? And I was like, I've got to get these posters. It's this great poster of classic one of the Smiths from the inside of uh, Hatful of Hollow. Then there was another one of Morrissey kind of dancing in, in shirt, sort of weird, kind of peculiar shadow. And then there was a third one of Johnny Ma and it was three posters for two pounds so, I bought those posters and I just couldn't wait to get back to High Street Station in Glasgow and get on the train and get home, get my posters in safely and, and get them on the wall. And as I was walking along to get the train, there was this, I heard some screaming and there was this coach started to drive by and it was the Smiths, right, <laughs> on the coach. And I was like, Who's that? Oh, my God. Oh, that's Johnny Marr. Oh, oh. And it was Johnny Marr and Mike Joyce on one side of the coach and Morrissey and Andy on, on the other. And I was on the opposite side of the road, so I was on the Johnny Marr side. And Johnny Marr waved to me. I was on my own, this little girl, my Smith T-shirt, my little posters, compared to everybody else, very small. And Johnny Marr waves and gave me a thumbs up. Thank you, Johnny.
1: Oh, isn't that brilliant? What an end to the first gig. Yeah. That's fantastic.
2: Anyway, smash it. Smash it.
1: Was <laughs> oh, that what we're here for? Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: Gavin, where were you at in October 85?
1: So I would have been 15 and a half just uh, into my last year o and CSE year at school. And uh, regular listeners may remember that sometimes my teenage diary covers the years and you're in luck. Because this is one of them years so oh, I love this so October the ninth nineteen eighty five there's big news of foot say frisbee got thrown onto a roof by a bloody fourth year had a <laughs> prefect's photo taken going to town on Saturday with Brian and Dave Thursday October the tenth got frisbee back did some makeup in drama, which was fun got a letter back from BBC I have no idea what that letter was saw the cult Col- <laughs> and the Smiths on top of the pops excellent. The next day, the 11th, Friday. Got up at 7.45. Got out on time but forgot my lunchbox and glasses. I played golf and games. (laughs) Some random stuff. Very importantly, October the 12th, on Saturday, went into town with Brian and Dave, as discussed previously, bought the boy with a thorn in his side and trousers. Mum felt bad and I had a headache. I, I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> and then um, the following week, I was on a field trip to Conway in Wales, a geography field trip. Uh, so on October the 15th, this is good, uh, it says, uh, went to Coombe, Idwal. must have been something to do with the geography field trip. I had my diary nicked. John gave it back to me. Good lad. I'm going to become a new wave poet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was very influenced by Rick Mail at the time. Uh, and then let's see one more. One more day. Uh, oh, yeah, this, this is good. My nan was living down uh, in, in Bridgewater at the time. So on October the 22nd, went to Taunton with Edith, one of my nan's friends, nan and mum, bought a ruler and some hole reinforcers. Wow.
2: <laughs> I remember those hole reinforcers. They yeah. were really important, you weren't had they? You to stick them on, didn't
1: you, to your homework? Yeah. and Yeah.
2: So much work, so the page didn't tear and the ring binder.
1: So that's the kind of way I was rolling back then. I mean, I would have been so jealous of you, Julie, going to see the Smiths. At the time, it didn't really occur to me to go to gigs because I didn't have any older brothers or sisters. None of my mates liked music. So I think I was vaguely aware that concerts happened, but I didn't know how to get that into my life. Do you know what I mean? I'd not kind of worked that bit out. So uh, it was a few more years before I started going to gigs. But, I mean, I you know, I'd been into the Smiths because I was a couple of years older, so I'd kind of discovered them kind of, you know, like uh, this charming man and what difference does it make. So by this point, I was, like, totally, totally into them. I fell in love with them straight away, like you did, I guess, you know. And But, yeah, I'd have killed to see them. So, uh, yeah, so that was me, So si. What about yourself? Well, October 1985, I'd just turned 12. It'd be my
0: 12th birthday um, a couple of weeks before this. And I'd spent my 12th birthday at my brother's wedding in Castleford in West Yorkshire. Uh, got married at the uh, registry office in Pontefract, and then we spent the day in some pub somewhere opposite a rugby ground. That's that's all I can remember, really. And Stevie Wonder on the jukebox. That was the DJ, the jukebox. You just had to keep piling your money in there. But the week after, the because my birthday was on the Saturday, and the Saturday after, I went downtown with my birthday money and bought loads of records, And when I was putting together the the playlist for this edition of Smash It's, I was just immediately transported back to that that Saturday afternoon, wandering around Sheffield to all all the different record shops. This is my happy place. (laughs) I didn't keep a diary then, but I kept all my records, and I went through, I dug out off my record shelves, Went and found all the records that I bought in 1985.
2: Hi, can I, can I ask you a question? You you were only 12. You seem to be very young to be going around record shops at 12. I mean, I was obviously much older than you. I was almost 14. Oof. But when did you first buy a record? How old were you? Were you actually went to a shop and bought a record?
0: About five years old. No way. I found, found a pound note on the floor in the fish market in Sheffield <laughs> uh, and and persuaded my mum to take me to a, a record shop and I bought bought the best of the wombles.
2: Oh. <laughs> Good choice. There's a
0: a track on there, Tobermory's Music Machine, which changed my life, that song did. Um, But 1985 is the year that I was really into buying the records as they came out. Yes. Had to go and buy them. Um, So October 85, well, the the, the singles I got with my birthday money, I bought Dancing in the Street, 12-inch, David Bowie and Mick Jagger. I got um, Brand New Friend by Lloyd Cole, um, Style Council, The Lodgers. Red Box, lead on me, got that as a shape picture. This
2: so the first two records you read out were um, Langer and with Stanley Productions, which I was a big fan of theirs as well. Lloyd Cole and um, David Bowie. But I was just going to say, Simon, it sounds like you were buying any old garbage then that you hadn't actually formed your tastes until much <laughs> later. I mean, you're talking about Red Box, and uh, you know, some. I, I would not have been friends with you in 1985. You're an embarrassment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I stand. I stand by that red box song. Although I did um, <laughs> "Lean On Me," love that song, and I found the album in a charity shop. Is it the the, bo- the the square and the circle or something like that? Found it in a charity shop a few years ago. I thought, oh, I really like "Lean On Me." I'll buy the album. See what that's like. Terrible.
2: If you if you say next that you bought "Living in a Box" by "Living in a Box," no, this podcast is over.
0: We're out of here. <laughs> even though they were Sheffield lads and I should have liked them nah bloody terrible name man.
2: good lads <laughs> you're safe for now
0: thank you well that's 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 good to know So we have gone back to the 9th to the 22nd of October, 1985. 43 pence for this issue of Smash Hits. Hit songs by Madonna, Elton John, Sade and many more. Posters. Let's see, there's a few posters in here. Billy Idol, Paul Weller, Simon Le Bon. But on the front, Grace in this cover. And uh, I think the reason that we're here uh, recording this right now. Morrissey and Pete Burns. Or Pete Burns? the very odd couple. Yes. So I think that, w- that would have drawn a lot of people in and we'll talk about that a bit more when we get to the feature. But Let's just get stuck into the mag, shall we? And have a look at bits. Uh, anything leaping out to you, Gav, from these first few pages
1: on the old bits? From the old bits, let me have a look. Well, we've got uh, Balama the Angel, who I've got a bit of a story about them because they were Midlands lads. They were from Cannock, And they were sort of a bit of a... Julie, you must remember them, I guess, being a bit of a gothy type. Yeah. Balam and the Angel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they
2: were, we called them Balam and the Angel, but they, they were on, okay. on the fringes. Balam.
1: Balam and the Angel.
2: <laughs> Balam.
1: <laughs> Balam. And um, I suddenly remember today that either my – because I, I lived in Sully Hall, so I had a hairdresser. <laughs> and it was either my hairdresser or my mum's hairdresser knew them, and they knew that I liked music and records. So they said, oh, I'll get you a, a signed record. So I was like – Free sign record, yeah. So, I, I don't know where it ended up, I must have got rid of it at some point. But, uh, not long after this issue came out, I got a like a Gatefold seven inch with their signatures on. I remember getting the album that they brought out because they were on Virgin and they there was quite a lot of money pumped into them. I don't think they ever really did anything, and I know they're still gigging now, but uh, yeah, so that was funny seeing them again. That had been a while. And next to Balam and the Angel, just kind of to the left, there's a band called Fever Tree. And I was just looking at the woman from Fever Tree's called Adele Nozdar Nozadar, and she's a she's a writer now. She's got a book published by Harper Collins. It says she's long been fascinated by the power of symbols and visual signs, which led her to the formal study of alchemy. And she wrote a book about symbols and signs. I mean, she's this article is about her being a bit of a witch and. It says she's descended from a long line of witches in Yorkshire. So it's not your typical smash it's fair, really, is it? (laughs) I quite like that you've got a Yorkshire witch in there along with Balaam and the angel and, you know, along with everything else. So they were, yeah, they were the things that kind of jumped out at me, and also Drum Theater to get a mention again. We've talked about them once or twice before.
0: We, we have indeed. I mean, going back to Balaam and the Angel, yeah, it's going on about how how they got their name and some convoluted story about the, the Old Testament and stuff. Oh yeah, the donkey and yeah, I, I thought I thought they just named themselves after Stops on the Tube, just Balam and the Angel, you know, <laughs> Angel, Angel <laughs> Islington, because when I used to live in London, I used to see those on the little underground map and go, oh, that's that band. <laughs> I never knew what they did.
2: I never liked them. I didn't like their look. Uh, I thought they, one of them looked like Tapau, one looked like Wurzel Gummidge, and the other one like Gary Newman. And they just, <laughs> they just that, that put me right off. I just didn't like their hair. Fickle.
1: No, that's fair enough. That's fair coming. You've got to judge them by
0: something, haven't you? I mean, I think that's, that's one thing that stands out in these pages of bits at the beginning of the mag, is that there are lots of forgotten artists, people mm-hmm. who didn't didn't quite make it, you know. Um and there's there's Annabelle Louin from Bow Wow Wow. Yeah,
2: Bow Wow Wow. Who launched yeah. a
0: solo career. I didn't even know she'd done that, you know.
2: <laughs> I tell you, like you you were just saying there what bits what bits stick what out bits, for yeah, you. Yeah. And uh I opened the magazine and uh apart from having a quick glance at the gorgeous Lloyd Cole uh behind the, the wire fence there, the bits that were nearly sticking out on page three were Simon the Bonds'
1: mm, bits, lads. Oh, oh. You
2: know, one of the one of the is boys is nearly out the barracks. There, <laughs> I mean, if um, shorts had been any shorter, uh, I mean, it's a stunning photograph of Simon there with one leg up, legs very far apart, one knee up, and an elbow on the knee. The drum shirt, which of course that was his yacht, yeah, it's, it's wasn't in his it?
0: yachting gear. Those yachting
1: shorts, yachting gear, yeah.
2: and. Um, But, I mean, how far apart are his legs? He looks like he's about to go into the maternity ward.
1: There's definitely a hint of Kojak there, isn't
2: there? (laughs) Yeah. A very even tan as well. He's probably his best looking there, I would say, as well. But is it not like when they're taking these photographs and a lot of the posters are like that, and we'll talk about the Morrissey and Pete Burns one as well, but how do they get them into these positions? Like, whose idea is it say Simon sit on this stool here with the white satin sheet over it, lift one leg up really high, part the other knee as far yeah. away from it as possible, yeah. and yeah. Uh, look slightly to the right and pout.
1: And if you could just poke your left bollock back into your shorts. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. yeah, we'll take that.
2: There's a reason why it's page three.
1: Yeah, page three stunner. Simon bollocks Yeah. yeah. Simon the Bon (laughs) Bon. While we're talking of glamorous people, we should mention uh, Paul King, a few pages on with his uh, tempestuous love life.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hello, hello, hello. What's going on here, then? Yeah,
1: the secret life of the man they call Paul King. So we've got two photos of Paul, and in the first one, uh, he's with two, in inverted commas, chicks, and looks pretty ruddy friendly with them, too, according to Smash It. (laughs) Um, Identical twins, I guess yeah they look identical from this distance and then underneath there's a picture of him with a couple of uh, slightly older blondes and it says that Paul's supposed to have been going out with a girl called Maxine Rice for the past 5 years who's apparently been kept quiet to maintain his Romeo image pop stars eh what can you do with them so uh, i think there's a lot going on with paul king's love life here isn't there no this is real gossip this is real it's true proper gossip this isn't is it?
2: very very uh exciting i mean there's four women there Pretty much like sitting either side of him, and he does look very happy. And in one of them, he's kept his shades on. Yeah.
1: Well, in the top one, they look very young, don't they?
2: Don't you think? Yeah, and they're dressed identically as well, which is like yeah, kind it's of a bit odd. bizarre, odd.
1: Yeah,
0: it, it does say um, the pair on the top are identical twins and not very old. A nation cries shouldn't be allowed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the days when you could joke about that kind of thing. Yeah, and in the one underneath the woman on the right looks a bit like Wincy Willis who used to do the weather on TV AM I don't think it is her but there's definitely a whiff of Wincy about it. <laughs> a whiff of Wincy
2: there's been a lot of hairspray used in both of those pictures I mean the the 80s haircuts there are peak peak 1985 two spiral perms in the top shot and then two kind of bad Bonnie Tyler stroke Rod Stewart styles in the bottom it's highly flammable I think <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> You can almost smell the Harmony hairspray from here, can't you? Coming off the page, you know.
2: Is she or isn't she? Yeah, she is. Uh,
1: she is. She definitely is. So is he. yes um, Yes. But
0: the, the piece next to that, Larry Blackman from uh, Cameo says, I can't talk for too long. Apologises, Larry Blackman, the man behind Cameo. I'm just getting ready to go out to my dance class. Dance class? Oh, dear. Anything that sounds like exercise just makes Bits' legs go a bit wobbly. He doesn't do it often, does he? Every day, he laughs, except that at the moment we're just about to do some TV shows, so we've stepped it up to twice a day. It's jazz dance, about 45 minutes stretching, then 35 minutes dancing. Mmm, Larry
1: Blackman's jazz dancing. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't seem bothered about being in smash hits at all, does he? He just wants to go to his dance class. and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, It ends really quickly, doesn't it? It just says, uh, oh, it's 12.30, I'd better go to my class, and he's gone. Yep and that's it it just ends really quickly well
2: to be fair to him he did say I can't talk for too long so he had stuff to do he had a cod piece to fit <laughs> he's a, he's a man. yeah he's a man
1: with a mission isn't he and that mission is jazz dance. Yeah. So if if you look at the uh, on the video playlist,
0: there is the top of the pops performance of Single Life on there. Those dance lessons have paid off. There's some sharp moves going on down there. And and the, <laughs> the three guys at the front oh, show. really yeah, they really got it going on. Yeah. There's
2: a lot of thrusting.
0: Yeah. I enjoyed mm. it. I enjoyed it. It was
2: good. Oh good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not just the thrusting, they've got their moves down. So finding out that it was having jazz dance lessons, I'm not surprised, you know? Well, let's move on to the main feature, shall we? Pete Burns and Morrissey, a friendship made in heaven. So was this a friendship that was known about prior to them appearing in Smash It's together? Do, you, do either of you know?
1: I had no idea, so when this came out, I remember being kind of quite taken aback because I know, Julie, you said you liked Dead or Alive at the time, but I, I think probably not that many Smiths fans would have liked Dead or Alive and vice versa you know because musically they were very different bands and they seemed to stand for very different things Spin Me Round was out and Stock Aitken and Waterman were producing so it seemed I mean it still seems quite strange now that you know this relationship they had but at the time I think for me I was I was very shocked I mean I was kind of delighted because it was so funny and strange but it was a surprise was it for you
2: uh, I was I was surprised and delighted uh, to see that, and I felt like even Smash Hits were su- surprised as well because there's <laughs> one one question mark and two exclamation marks in the headline. The very odd couple question mark we never knew about that exclamation mark exclamation mark. And the the front cover as is a theme with these pictures. Is it Paul Cox, the photographer that took these shots? Is Morrissey's always looking one way, and Pete Burns is always looking another. So never mm. actually looking at each other in any of the pictures. So again, it's been that setup in the shots where it's like, okay, which way are you going to look, Morrissey? I'm going to look straight ahead. Okay, I'll I will look up. All right. Okay, got that. Click that, yeah. and then you go through the whole feature. Which way are you look, Morrissey? I'm going to look up. <laughs> okay, I will look to the right, and then every picture they're looking never in the same direction, not ever. And I just wondered what the thought process was behind that, Maybe perhaps because they were such different friends. But I was surprised and delighted to see that they were friends because I did think at that point I knew a bit about Pete Burns because he was Nightmares and Wax and, he, and Dead or Alive had been around you know, in the Liverpool scene for a good few years. And Pete Burns was already an eccentric. He was already a well-established pop star mm. before he even... He, he, in the underground scene uh, before he even got to Stock Aitken and Waterman. I did like You Spin Me Round as well. I thought it was great. But uh, he kept his kind of goth look even though he moved into full-blown bubblegum SAW pop. And I always thought he was definitely a bit strange. So when I found out this 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 issue of Smash Hits came out and I saw that they were pals, I was delighted, like ah. <laughs> I- completely, I was could not wait to read the article. And the article doesn't disappoint because it's got this, are they friends or aren't they friends? The whole thing's sort of stringing the way through it. They're clearly trying to outdo each other. They're trying to outfunny each other. They're trying to impress each other. Well, I sent him flowers. Well, I sent him a bigger bunch of flowers, you know. And it's like both being very camp, flirty, but obviously Pete's married at that time to Lynn. And you know she's like, what do you want to eat? Do you want a cheese sandwich? And, and then you get the detail, which is another thing I really loved about Smash Hits is that they always told you what people were eating. <laughs> but um, you've got this sort of weird dynamic where you don't know whether they're flirting, whether they're friends, whether... Pete has seen Morrissey and thought, there's another eccentric, there's another unique one-off artist in this decade. And I think Morrissey had seen Pete and said and kind of looked up to him a little bit. I think that they looked up to each other a little bit, and I think that really comes across.
1: Yeah, but I think it, like you said, it kind of almost begs more questions than it answers, doesn't it, about the nature of their friendship and what the story behind this article is, because I don't remember anything after this, really, to do right. with Morrissey or Burns, whether they fell out. And like you said, the nature of their relationship is it's not very clearly defined, because... what. At some points, it, it seems like they're almost lovers, sending each other flowers, Pete Burns stalking him on tour, phoning up all the time, having blazing rows. You know, it's a very... It seems like quite a tempestuous relationship in some ways, even though Pete's married. And you just think, what what's going on? And what what exactly is the story here, you know? But it was, it's so funny all the way through. And like you say, they're just trying to out-camp each other the whole time.
2: But I feel like it could have been a friendship that maybe lasted two weeks but was a very intense friendship and that they yeah. sm- this that, kind of smash hits, so it re- like, I couldn't be totally <laughs> wrong, but like smash hits really nailed the, the absolute, like, centre of it, you know, jumped in on it and went, look, those two are, appear to be... It's not two weeks, obviously, because he followed him on tour, but um, the idea that these two people are friends is kind of mind-blowing. It's kind of like two eccentric icons coming together to make a sort of very strange friendship and the bra- the way that they and don't want to over intellectualize this uh, article too much or flatter the writer but the way that the whole thing is kind of branded is perfect the, the photographs are perfect because they're never looking at each other the way they're trying to outdo each other is perfect. Uh, the whole art direction of it and the, and the front cover and the headline is actually perfect because, as you say, it make, it begs curiosity, but it doesn't mm. actually give you any real conclusions about whether they were great friends or not.
0: It's uh, very Morrissey then in that case <laughs> <laughs> well yeah yeah not giving not giving anything away I just want to read actually the, the a couple of bits from the um first page of the piece um it begins it's a big step for us doing this piece together so a bouncy good humor Pete burns I can't do his voice so I won't do it we could have done it for the sun can you imagine what they would have made of it indeed this seemingly unlikely friendship between two of pop's most awkward and newsworthy stars is a scoop that tabloids wouldn't down Go bonkers for Morrissey and Pete Burns, bosom chums. Who'd have thought it? I know people who think, My God, what can Pete see in Morrissey? says Pete. Yes, says Morrissey. And I know people who think, What can Pete see in Morrissey? The pair dissolve in laughter. Quite (laughs) clearly, they adore
1: each other. But why? I mean, Pete goes on to say, doesn't he? I think Pete's thing with Morrissey is he likes the fact that Morrissey doesn't play the game at all and he just disappears for weeks at a time when he needs to and although Pete I guess you know was a very strong character and very much his own person but I think he played the game a bit more I get the impression whereas I think he likes the fact that Morrissey once he's had enough he just shuts the door of his flat and no one speaks to him for a, you know until Morrissey's ready to um, enter the world again you know and that totally. seems to be what Pete likes in Morrissey.
2: Pete is such an interesting character anyway. Uh, was I mean, if you read Wayne Hussey's book, you find out a lot about Pete in his Liverpool days uh, before they became this in, this version of Dead or Alive. But he was having stand-up rows in the street with, like, Courtney Love. He could make mincemeat with, of anybody. He was a really... You did not take on Pete Burns. He had a, a, a bacon-slicing tongue. You know, he would rip you to shreds. And I think that that... Because Morrissey was so outspoken, even then, you know, Morrissey was outspoken from the word go, and had had an album out, you know, Meet His Murder, everything like that. wasn't shy about talking about his views on the Queen, the royal family, everything, or even, um, you know, Live aids or Band Aid when all that happened. Said it was a, an abomination, and I think that that Pete would have probably have laughed at that and found that quite curious, and and found kind of an affinity uh, with Morrissey as one who stood out on Top of the Pops because Pete Burns, even though he was even though number one, he totally stood out. It didn't make any yeah. sense. You know, Dead or Alive didn't make any sense. They looked like goths, but they were making essentially disco music. And he stood out and Morrissey stood out. So when they were on Top of the Pops and you had all these other acts like, you know, Kim Wilde, Bonnie Tyler, whoever, Whitney Houston, and then you would get something like The Smiths or Dead or Alive. It was a real set up moment. So, no wonder really they kind of, I don't know, were pulled together in a friendship.
1: Yeah. Kind of two outsiders from different, coming from different places, but still very much on the margins and and eccentric characters. Mm -hmm. And they met in the top of the pops toilet as well, (laughs) it tells us, which is what a great place to meet. Morrissey says, I thought it would either be a black eye or it would be heavenly harmony. And then Pete says, he came up and spoke to me, which was a brave thing to do. So I decided to be polite to him. And from then on, we struck up a friendship that's been enduring. Before I met him, I thought he was a malicious little prat. Sometimes <laughs> Sometimes the things he says about other musicians are so strong. Morrissey has no mercy, you see, and that is where we differ. I'm a lot more charitable than people would expect, but he's not. Although, Julie, you were saying, you know... Clearly, in his past, he wasn't always quite so charitable, but
2: no. So it was actually uh, <laughs> uh, brave for Morrissey to approach. I mean, uh, it would be yeah. a challenge for Morrissey, and I think um, Pete might have been quite endeared by that, knowing of being very self-aware, you know, of his own yeah. reputation for uh, any other pop stars who went near him.
1: Another factor, maybe, the, the Manchester Liverpool thing, because obviously they're two cities only thirty miles apart, but there is a lot of rivalry between them. But uh, the fact that they they got over that with it, you know, there's no mention of it at all in Mm. this. So I guess that wasn't a factor. But I was just I was just thinking about that the other day, because often, like I say, between Manchester bands and Liverpool bands, there's a real, you know, kind of like a maybe not a hatred, but yeah, a very strong rivalry.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't come into it, does it? I mean, I think what does does come into it is how they're sort of competing with each other in this article in a weird way in an interview, they're, they're agreeing, but they're disagreeing and they're teasing and they're taunting and they're trying to get one up on each other. And I think there's one part in here that says, Pete says, see, I've met my match. I've met my match tongue-wise. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that's, uh, that's what it is. It was a challenge both for Morrissey as an oddball and Pete as an oddball, to say oddball, I mean a unique, eccentric, beautiful person, Uh, to uh, they were a challenge for each other. And I think that they needed that and they enjoyed it because everything else was bland.
1: And I guess they wouldn't be afraid of standing up to each other. And, you know, as we know, it says they had a great big stand-up row on the phone a few days before. Yeah. Uh, I guess they probably liked that in each other, that they could just be themselves and not have to tone anything down, you know.
2: Yeah, anybody that stood up to Pete Burns had to be quite brave. Plus one had what the other one really wanted. They're both quite similar eccentric characters, but one had what the other one really wanted, which was a number one. Morrissey really wanted a number one all the time. He was obsessed by the charts, checking the charts all the time, as we were as well, the three of us, checking the charts, (laughs) seeing what number things were at. So was Morrissey. He wanted a number one, and I suppose in his mind, he'd be like, well, he looks a lot weirder than I do. He's got mad black hair. He wears a, <laughs> pa- you know, pan stick on his lips, t- an inch thick of makeup, one strand of hair coming down. Oh, f- doesn't, you know, clearly ha- isn't a goth. Used to be a goth, isn't a goth now. He's got a number one. Why have I not got a number one? You know, like I can just imagine the, the thought process. That, um, But of course, you know... It, Morrissey would have never have gone with Stock Aiken and Waterman, and rightly so.
1: Can you imagine? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know. In a sense.
1: <laughs> I was gonna say I wonder if Pete was kind of in any way jealous of the credibility that Morrissey and the Smiths had.
2: Yeah, I bet he was. You know, yeah. Much more authentic, uh, incredible music, you're right. and his if piece was produced right up the wazoo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, it's just a it's just a great interview. It's, I mean it's to me an interview like this is smash-its at its best. In fact, I think this is probably one of my all-time favourite things ever in in the smash Hits I was reading at that time, because it's just, it's so funny. It's really unexpected. Uh, You know, I remember it clearly now. You know, 35 years later, it's still kind of a little bit of my brain is dedicated to this interview. And like you say, yeah, it's intelligent. Um, It's quite subversive and strange. It doesn't really give the readers kind of what they want, and it's very like i said before it it kind of poses more questions than it answers it's perfect it's hilarious
2: yeah it's got you yeah. get you get absolutely no insight from it whatsoever it leaves you going well are they friends or are they still friends could they still be friends like if you were What's interviewing? yeah if you were like interviewing <laughs> like a, a member of slade and a member of wizards you would be like oh bet they're still best pals with Morrissey and Pete Burns, <laughs> you wouldn't have a clue either way if Pete Burns had, had uh, still been alive. But fa- fab eye makeup was the only other thing I want to say about Pete Burns. Fab eye makeup, excellent pan stick on the lips, really knew how to do a decent pout. As did Morrissey, both of them pouting, very minimal smiling as well, a lot of looking up to the sky, to the left and to the right, but never at each other.
0: So we get now to uh, let's see what page are we on? Twenty-four, and uh, there's Robert Smith of the Cure. I am filled with an overwhelming desire to die. And this was this was a, a feature that I remember incredibly well, simply because of the strange sight of the Cure, uh, and particular um, Bob himself in football gear. Yeah, because it just didn't go together. I'm not am not a sports person. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a football fan. So. The worlds of sport and music are entirely separate from each other, and I always found it rather odd and and slightly disturbing that there's Bob in his football kit. And he's still got his hair going on and everything. I just, uh, it just didn't, just didn't compute.
2: What team is it? What foo- what football team is it?
0: Team Cure.
2: So it's not an actual colours of like.
0: No, I think it's, it's just right. the kits that they had made for themselves for for having a kick around with the, with the road crew and, and stuff like that.
2: I, this I remember this interview very well as well, and I remember reading it, and I was just, I liked the Cure, and I remember thinking, God, you're absolutely miserable. You are <laughs> miserable. And of course, at the time, Morrissey was in the papers as being the misery and, you know, Big Mouth and heaven knows he's miserable now. And I think this isn't fair. And I remember feeling that the sort of... Uh, you know, there was an injustice there that, that Robert Smith, just a few pages on from Morrissey, who had given a highly entertaining interview, was very witty, very sharp, very intelligent, very cute, very flirty, And you get to Robert Smith, who's quote unquote, not the Mona, right? He's a right Mona. He's, he parties all the time All he complains about his hangovers the whole way through it. He sounds like he never washes. <laughs> uh, he's got like his milk and honey and hair in his mouth at one point in the interview. There's a moan in every paragraph. Uh, he makes Morrissey sound like Nick Hayward.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we're catching uh, Robert Smith, a particularly, uh, or, or the rest of the band, a particularly happy period when you read through this piece. But I'll just read the, the intro. It's 5 o'clock in the evening. Late as usual, the Cure's tour bus trundles the last few miles to tonight's concert in Pool. Inside, it looks like everyone has just woken up. The members of the band are sitting around in their especially-made Team Cure shirts, not talking, just staring into space through half-opened eyes. In one corner, there are two Japanese girls whispering. They followed the Cure around Japan earlier in the year and intend to go to every single date on the current tour. In the other corner, there are two young punkettes with Robert Smith hairdos. One's brushing her hair, while the other fiddles with the makeup in her school satchel. The doomy sounds of underground band, the psychedelic furs waft back from the driver's cassette player. Everything is just as you'd expect on the road with the cure except there's no sign of Robert Smith.
2: Yeah, he's in bed, isn't he? Yeah, he's in bed. He
0: yeah. all sounds pretty seedy as well. He's like, ooh.
2: <laughs> yeah, I would not like to be on that tour bus. You can. T- so what is good about that article is that it's kind of 3D and that you can almost smell it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you don't want to, like, you just think, God, they're rolling around in their own filth in that tour bus, <laughs> partying every night, getting drunk not, and not washing.
1: There's an awful lot of drinking in this, isn't there? Yes. Loads of references to being drunk and hungover. And like you say, he just he really doesn't sound like a happy bunny at all. It's just a miserable place he's in for whatever reason. And he spends half of the... um well, pretty much the entire feature, being on his back, lying down, being interviewed. He can't even be asked to stand up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he tries to eat honey while he's lying down and it all goes over his face. And, I mean, Robert, what's wrong with you, man, honestly?
0: But then he he, he talks about that um, he tells lies in interviews. It's because I do too many interviews. I bore myself if I don't make things up. It's like having your photograph taken too often. You end up not looking like yourself. I started doing it because nothing ever happens to me, yet people always expect me to do odd things.
2: Part of his brilliance is that he always looks, I mean, he looks perpetually bored, (laughs) doesn't he? You can just imagine, like, if you were to meet with him and hang out with him, there would be so much air blown out of his mouth and eye rolling at whatever it was that you had to say, (sighs) that you could never be as cool as he is, ever. (laughs) He even gets bored when he tries to entertain himself by lying.
1: (laughs) He doesn't seem to enjoy any of the concerts that they play, does he, he must have very high standards. It happens a couple of times, and at the end it says uh, they play another gig, and it says, Robert doesn't enjoy tonight's concert much, and afterwards, though so as friendly as always, he's in a bit of a sulk. When we're good, he explains, we're better than anybody. That's not being big-headed, I just think we are. <laughs> but sometimes, especially when my voice gives up, we're awful. But everyone seems to enjoy it. Yeah, he agrees. Well, we're always competent. It would be a bit unfair to charge people money to come and see a bunch of shambling duffers, wouldn't it? But we can be immense. Days like today, he sighs. I just wish they would end. It's an awful thing to wish the days away, but sometimes I do. This is a very bad patch. You've caught me on the hot. Well, oh, fucking hell, Robert, you don't say. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mate, you're playing these massive gigs. You've, like, you're in the charts. You've had like years of chart success already. People coming over from Japan to see you. And it's just like... Mm wasn't very good.
2: Yeah. The self-loathing is top-notch.
1: But it talks a little bit
0: about the, uh, the making of the, the Close to Me video, the one that's, that's in the wardrobe where they're all getting socks in the faces and things like that. Um, on the video. Great video. Fantastic video. On the video playlist, if you want to check that out. And this is a, a part of the feature that I always remember. The song's about being claustrophobic, not physically, but about how you can feel confined, even in the most expansive room, if you're with the wrong people. The video... And then it goes into brackets in which the whole band are crammed inside a wardrobe full of clothes which falls off the edge of a cliff and then fills up with water is very the line the witch and the wardrobe. They threw three empty wardrobes off beachy head cliffs and they had to use a fire engine to get enough water to fill the wardrobe they were in. Trouble was the water had been in the fire engine for six weeks and was disgusting. Eesh. So, so we were all violently sick the next day. Still, it was worth it for art's sake. <laughs> mm,
1: yeah,
0: but no, it, it is. It is a great video.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's quite. Um, I'm just thinking, sort of, from podcasts we've done before. This is quite often the theme, isn't it? Zion? smash it. There's normally at least one interview with a band where they've got a right hump on. <laughs> I remember like a UB forty one, oh, the one yeah. with Black that we did once. Yeah, And I, th- I think there's another one or two we've done where, for whatever reason, the band... Oh, the Mission one that we did last time, you know, no-one was happy then. And you... it seems like every every issue of Smash Hits, there's there's a band that are properly depressed and fed up and don't want to be doing this anymore. Five
0: go to Disneyland. Pooh Bear wanders by with a pot of honey on his head. Shoals of artificial fish splash merrily in a nearby lake. Donald Duck sings and prances to a terrible disco dirge. And Five Star climb aboard a roller coaster to deepest outer space. (laughs) What is going on? William Shaw investigates.
2: Not an article I would have read back in 85. I would have skipped right over this. Five go to Disneyland is kind of perfect, though, isn't it? I mean, the innocence and the purity of Five Star, they were always so pure in their pop, real lemonade sound. And to take them to Disneyland where they're so smiley and happy and kind of childlike, is, is kind of perfect, really. Enjoying themselves in the teacups, spinning around, dancing. I mean, it would have been a very different article if it had been like five, go and see Napalm Death or something like that. Like <laughs> <laughs> That would have been a bit more...
1: What about Morrissey and Pete Burns go to Disneyland? That would have been... Good. You know,
2: that would have been hilarious, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> One thing that made me laugh about this, because we, we talked before about uh, Pete Burns and Morrissey trying to outdo each other, and there's a bit where the, the members are going on the rides and they're giving it scores, and uh, Delroy goes on It's a Small World, and he says, Delroy Julia awards it 10 points out of 10, <laughs> and then Stedman goes on the famously terrifying Space Mountain. It, it says Stedman gets off with a manic grin and gives it 100 points out of 10. And I was like, Yeah, he's trying to outdo his brother there, isn't he? <laughs> I'm not going ten out of, I'm going hundred out of ten. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dolores comes off the teacups. It's a 1,000 out of 10.
0: <laughs> they are in uh, California to do some work. that are uh, promoting whatever the latest single was at the time in, in the USA and appearing on a TV show with um, Paul Young and Alison Moyet.
1: So. Mm. I mean, they were a massive band at this point, weren't they? They were absolutely huge.
2: Super catchy, super catchy pop. I remember when System Addict was out and we had an English assignment uh, to uh, make... We had been taught about... I mean... I was living in Airdrie, Airdrie in Coatbridge, uh, which is up in Scotland, which is the the, the highest heart attack rate for, for diet and, um, you know, a very low life expectancy age. Anyway, in second year of high school, we were being taught about alcoholism and uh, can't think why. And um, <laughs> the the teacher was like, OK, so now your, your um, assignment is to write a song about alcoholism in any which way form you would like to. OK, these are your groups. She put us into the groups and I remember our group and I I even remember the words like, instead of I said, why don't we do, why don't we take System Addict and we replace that with alcoholic, never can get enough. So we had a very strong chorus for our, you know, don't drink uh, (laughs) message, but some very poor verses. But even I remember that, (laughs) if I hear System Addict now, I'm like, Alcoholic. (laughs) never can get enough
0: did you have a dance routine to go with it as well
2: oh definitely and i like (laughs) to sing it as i pour wine down my neck oh cheers everyone
0: let's have a little look at rsvp shall we the page where people write in to get pen pals julie anybody that you would have uh, picked out there maybe put pen to paper yeah
2: oh definitely i mean if it If you want, like, a capture of what life was like in 1985, this is absolutely the best, most honest page. Just fantastic. It literally transported me back more than the music, just the writing, everything. But I would have written to Simon Pinder. My name is Simon Pinder, and I'm a gothic boy, age 15. (laughs) An older man. (laughs) I would like to hear from boys or girls of any age, worry. Preferably into groups like The Cure, The Cult, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Susie and The Gun Club. Hope to hear from you soon. Write to blah, 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 blah. I won't give his address in case anybody wants to write to him. But yeah, a gothic boy. Uh, Also, there's a theme in here where you either love heavy metal or you hate it. So there's, and I don't know if you guys get this every time you do this podcast, but there's somebody who will come on and who will be like, I'm into every kind of music except heavy metal. And then a couple of columns down you'll see, I don't know what everyone's problem is with heavy metal. <laughs> I love heavy metal. And it's always specifically about that genre. Is that, a th- is that a theme that you found in reading back these old issues?
1: Definitely. Yeah, I think the, the people that liked heavy metal didn't really like anything else. And then people that liked chart music or even like some slightly alternative music, but they all hated heavy metal, whether they were kind of alternative or disco or pop. No one else seemed to like heavy metal apart from... Metalers, and that was it. Do
2: you think the, well, the Metalers probably, would have been reading Kerrang at that point? Yeah, I mean, in every
1: issue of Smash It's, there's always something for the Metalers, whether it's a gig review of White Snake or you know a little piece on uh, Guns N' Roses or whatever. There's, I think they tried to keep Smash It's a very broad church, so there'd always be something. But you're right, you'd think if you were really into metal, you'd think Kerrang would be your natural home, wouldn't you, really? mm
2: but I remember there was a metaler in my class at school, Pat Close, who was really into Van Halen. And actually, uh, he was also very defensive about his taste in music as well. And we would often have a kind of stand up row simply because I would go, are you like Van Halen? And he would go, it's Van Halen. It's Van Halen. That's how you pronounce it. It's Van Halen. <laughs> and I would walk away like muttering, Van Halen. Van Allen <laughs> like come out, come after me like the most annoying little brat, but uh yeah, but but I don't think heavy metalers, I found more stranger than Goths actually. you a couple of metal yeah. you couple...
1: No, no, I'm not a metaler. no. I think sign did you ever have a metal face? My, my sister had a metal face, so she did it for me. all right <laughs> I mean one one letter here that stood out to me um the very first one. my name is Pete. And I'm 20 years old, which you think for Smash Hits that seems quite old, doesn't it?
2: Mm.
1: He says I'm into U2, Simple Minds, The Cure, The Cult, and most chart music. So come on, all you females, get pen <laughs> to paper and don't be shy. Someone in Edinburgh, not that far from you there, Julie.
2: Does he give a surname? He doesn't give a surname, sadly.
1: No, he's just Pete, 20 year old Pete. So it feels like he's kind of using RSVP for something a little more. Uh... <laughs> Extracurricular, should we say, but I don't He's know. He's
2: certainly um, trying to, you know... Rouse up a response Isn't he So come on All you females I mean You can kind of like Nothing dodgy here I'm only 20 It's fine
1: You might be 12 or 13 I mean You can see him Sort of
2: punching the air As he's like Come on Get writing But
0: that's That's the thing uh, In this It's like Wanted females Males All that kind of thing That's the language That's used throughout That made me me laugh a bit But this one here Tall tanned blonde Wants tall tanned male Urgently Must tolerate (laughs) Eurythmics and rubber plants. <laughs> See, I'm wondering if that was a typo and should have been rubber pants. I don't know.
2: Or Robert plants. Rubber plants.
1: That's Louise. <laughs> that's Louise in Qatar. Or Robert plants rubber pants. I mean, <laughs> we just don't know.
2: <laughs> that's a very specific brief. Oh. I mean, really. Um- <laughs> Narrowing down the responses there must also must tolerate eurythmics. I think that's quite good yeah. uh language, actually. I don't <laughs> know. I would have never have tolerated any eurythmics uh and still won't. I like but I like John. John's got his own disco. Oh uh. hi, my name is John. I'm 19 years old. I run my own disco. I like most types of music. So if anybody, anywhere, any age has got five minutes to spare. Write to John Bond, 43 Camden Road. Yeah. 19 and a bit desperate. (laughs) Yeah, anyone, any age, please, someone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love the uh, Captain Sensible sunglasses in the advert underneath as well. £3.50 with gold frames and smoke or mirror lenses. They're great, aren't they? Did you
2: ever buy anything from these adverts? Because I did. And, I mean, to look at them now, they are bare illustrations of what you might get. They are black <laughs> black and white drawings of black canvas jeans, bondage trousers, jumpers, and PVC jeans. It's not just right. any
0: jumper. It's a holy mohair jumper.
2: True, true. Very religious jumper. But <laughs> I bought PVC jeans off one of these adverts. And, um, I mean, they were great. They were actually what they said. But if you, if somebody put that out there now... It's a, it's a drawing. It's a drawing. It looks like a kind of a cartoon drawing like out of, you know, a, a magazine or a like a take on me video kind of drawing of a pair of jeans. You don't you could have got anything. The jeans might have even been that actual size. <laughs>
0: Shall we have a look at Lloyd Cole? Oh, yeah, let's, let's definitely look. Doesn't kiss people very much, hates worms, walks through right outside his headmaster's office. Now, reading this piece, he seems quite game, but I don't think he's necessarily being asked the right questions and the, the, the piece doesn't seem to quite take off in, in that kind of smash-it style and the writer's trying very hard but not quite getting it. And like I said, Lloyd, Lloyd Cole's game, he's up for it. You know, he's gone down Portobello Road, he's posing around. and But I don't know, there's just something about, about the piece that doesn't quite hit the mark.
1: I don't know what you thought. Yeah, I had thought exactly the same thing when I was reading it, that you can tell he's trying to give funny answers and be quite silly and very much in the Smash It style. But for whatever reason, it's whether there's no follow-up questions or, or whatever, it, it just it just seems like he's really trying but it it doesn't kind of at any point like the touch paper and really kind of take off. I'm not quite sure why,
2: but... But the questions themselves are quite, I suppose, a bit bland, a bit one-dimensional and and kind of... I don't like this one, like, what is the most horrible thing about your body? And that's the second question in the interview. (laughs) You know, Lloyd isn't even allowed a warm-up here. It's like, where's home? (laughs) There's question number one. Question two, what's the most horrible thing about your body? And God bless him, you know, he's really confessional about it and he's like, my spots. And then I thought, ooh, reading I, I didn't know Lloyd Cole had spots, but he says, you might not be able to see them, but there's a lot there. I carry one of those spot sticks around with me so I can attempt to hide them. At those on his spare tire. So he's like, he's quite confessional there. But then I then went back to the image and zoomed in on his, uh, and I can see a few spots on that perfect face of his, that perfect skin. But he's covered in <laughs> pan stick which he probably borrowed off Pete Burns because Pete Burns used that on his lips. <laughs> but very handsome. But also, in later he says, they're like, who would you like to read? I can't remember the question.
0: Oh, if you weren't Lloyd Cole, who would you be?
2: Yeah, Jackie Collins. What a great writer. What? I mean, he's writing songs about reading Norman <laughs> Mailer and he says he'd be Jackie Collins. Kind of another little aspect of Lloyd that I didn't get.
1: The pictures are very sort of Athena style, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I mean he's got a fantastic look, like all. It just all. I mean he still looks great. He's very much a good-looking person, even with his little polo neck and his satchel on his shoulders, kind of studenty, studenty cool look. And then he puts his uh, his glasses on, and he still looks like, yeah, I fancied him. <laughs> I think we better turn the page.
0: Let's have a look at the singles reviews now, shall we? Um, reviewed by Vicky MacDonald in this one. She's not liking the stuff very much here, is she? She's not into it. She's not feeling it. She makes The Long Riders uh, Looking for Lewis and Clark's single of the fortnight. Can't argue with that. It is a, a storming tune. And the other thing that she seems to be rather keen on is a single by somebody called Keenan, <laughs> Water Sport, which just sounds like a really, when I've listened to it, it sounds like a really lame dead or alive ripoff. But then she's disimprints. Prince. She's um, not too keen on the communards.
2: Yeah, but to be fair, that Prince Pop life is terrible, so I do agree with her then. <laughs> it is funny. Oh, So she's got the whole smash hits, like, again, it was that thing I was talking about, smash hits, when they introduced sarcasm to a younger audience. She's like desperately trying to be cool in her, her review. So she's like, you know, yawn, Prince is so boring. This is a stupendously tedious rock workout. You know, like like that Young Ones, like Neil and Vivian thing. And also like King Taste of Your Tears, which is actually a good song. The first three times I heard this piece of jangly 60s la 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 whimpery, I had to check the sleeve to remind myself who the group was. It was that unmemorable. <laughs> It was like like an unnecessary cruelty uh, where she's like ready to slice into anything that she listens to.
0: Madness, Uncle Sam. She says, I'm not entirely sure what they're going on about, to be quite honest, but it sounds almost as bad as going to see Uncle
1: Disgusting.
2: (laughs) Oh, great song that as well, Uncle Sam. I love that.
1: And there's a thing that runs through it where she's, it's almost like she's trying to distance herself from the rest of the people at Smash It's. Just mentioned a few times, isn't it, where she talks about everyone else that smash its like in something, and she doesn't like. Um, oh yeah, Grace, Grace Jones, Jones. She says everyone at the hits thinks this ultra smooth and slick, jazz tinged. ZTT production number is a work of unparalleled genius. She's talking about slave to the rhythm, and then she says everyone except me, that is, he thinks it's all gloss and no substance. So there, and the same for Mark Alman, She says uh, she's talking about love letters says so she's known as the boss around these parts, actually. But at the risk of getting the sack, I have to say that this one's a might tiresome, What with a jittery synth backing that sets the teeth on edge. So it feels like she's really kind of out of step with the rest of what the staff might be liking, you know. Mm. And I don't know if she's doing that, whether it's a personal thing or just a musical thing or whether there's some um, office politics going on or what, I don't know. But it's kind of, I think it's a strange tack to take that she keeps mentioning that, Everyone else likes this, but I don't. I don't know. It's unusual. But
2: it is quite a teenage thing to do that, isn't it? It's kind of like when you're trying to... sort of, I'm going to differentiate myself. and Yeah, I'm like, yeah, Well, you all like Duran Duran, but I hate Duran Duran. <laughs> well, she did write
0: glittering
1: shards of sepulchral majesty. It's, it's another reappearance of the shimmering shards. Um, we need to mention as well Arcadia, Election Day, which was... Um, Arcadia were one of Duran Duran's two splinter groups. There was power station which was uh, the Taylors and then Arcadia were Simon Le Bonbon and Nick Rhodes. And uh, Vicky doesn't like it. She says it's about a zillion times better than the power station, but then what isn't? One wonders how long the various Duran factions can keep on putting out this lacklustre stuff without going completely down the dumper. (laughs) And the reason I wanted to talk about election day as well is there's a fantastic video that's on the playlist. And if you've not seen it, you really need to it's, I think it might be peak 80s because it's got a massive budget. It's Simon LeBon and Nick Rose being very po-faced and pretentious and trying to do some proper serious acting and sashaying around the place. There's loads of, like, meaningless symbols and stares between characters in the video and billowing Saturn and I don't know what the hell's going on. It's preposterous. But, I mean, it's great. Have, you, have either of you two seen it?
2: I've seen it, yeah. It's
1: brilliant. I saw it at the cinema <laughs> in
0: 1985. It was a supporting feature for Back to the Future. And they showed that first. And we were like, whoa. <laughs> wow. I, mean, I, I love that song anyway. It's got Andy Mackay from Roxy Music playing sax on there. And I think um, Dran Duran were always at their best with the art rock stuff. And this is like Art Rock with a capital A. Yeah, It's just uh, fabulously pretentious and ridiculous and... You can just see the, the the cocaine just kind of like drifting. <laughs> the, the powder just drifting up from everybody's all these supermodel-looking types who's kind of wandering around. It's like yeah, Nick Rhodes' hair in it is just absolutely oh. massive. Oh, it's magnificent! He must, have, <laughs> he must have had <laughs> scaffolding to support his head, you know. Sensational! Did you spot a little cameo from William Burroughs in there?
1: No. I oh, sees the fella, the old fella. Oh, right. There's, there's an old fella. It, it comes
0: yeah. to him twice, yeah, yeah. quite close together. I'm like, was that William Burroughs? I didn't spot that in 1985 when I was 12. I didn't really know about William Burroughs then. But um, I was watching it um, the, the other day. I'm like, well, hold on a minute. So, yeah. Yeah, just Googled as the video
2: it. was starting to make sense and up pops <laughs> William Burroughs. <laughs> That video makes uh, no sense at all. You can imagine the discussion in the room. Like, let's storyboard what we want. Ele- <laughs> election day. And, you know, well, I mean, I want some entrances of, uh, you know, beautiful supermodels. And I would like a lot of focus on my hair. I would like some symbolism. Um, can we have a chess game? Oh, and can we have William Burrows?
1: Yeah. Tick, <laughs> tick, tick. See-through <laughs> dice. Uh, we want that. And... Yeah, that graffiti artist when uh, Nick Rose puts his hand up and the graffiti artist does, like, a cross thing on his gloved hand and then he, he sachets off. How they kept a straight face, I'll never know. It's so funny.
2: Ah, oh, it's brilliant. It's like, they've been like, how much money have we got? Because um, I don't want this to make any sense. I want like it to be, <laughs> really, like, really mysterious. And for people to watch it and go, what the hell was that? Because it's going to be the These guys are crazy.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Like, that's such a step away from Duran Duran. Arcadia, like, wow. Like, that's not like Wild Boys at all.
0: No. <laughs> but Simon Le Bon's entrance, that kind of slow motion, high stepping thing that he does, like it's sort of like a, a, a show pony or something. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> doing dressage. Yeah. Doing dressage. And he, but he, he did it on the top of the Pops performance as well. He comes down these steps of the, mm, 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 with his espadrilles on.
1: He's trying to keep his bollocks in.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he went commando for that, and uh, he has to move carefully.
2: Oh, the detail you get on this podcast. (laughs)
1: So, as I was saying, if you've not watched the video yet, please go and watch it. It's very, very good. You won't regret it.
2: Did you guys see the... um, I'm looking at the page now on uh, page 72 when i was flicking through the magazine to do this i literally had to stop and just admire this page and i started drooling because it is a beautifully photographed walkman the blue walkman sony walkman a wm22 yeah complete madness in it to to give you that sort of you know that as if you're listening to it it could be yours kind of feeling fantastic looking set of headphones that did not have an orange cover on top, and at that very expensive price of twenty nine ninety five, I cannot tell you how much I desired to have a Sony Walkman, but I couldn't afford it. I could only get either an AWA, which was, was always breaking, or one earphone was always breaking, and the, the headphones were always, again, orange, which in time wasn't very goth. <laughs> and it was an object of desire, the Walkman. Did you guys have one? I had an Iowa as well. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I wanted one, never got one.
0: I, I had and still have a 1982 Sanyo personal cassette player. Weighs an absolute tonne, takes four batteries. It's got a belt loop on it, so I used to put it on my belt and uh, walk around. I'm
2: so envious. I had a strap which I wore (laughs) diagonally over the top, opposite to the paper bag.
0: So what was the the best Delivering Newspapers soundtrack then?
2: Oh, the Smith's first album. Yeah, that is the sound. I wrote an article about it for some online website called The Sound of the Paper Round. And actually, the article goes through walking down to, to the first track, the weather being very cold, me cracking puddles with my shoes, the resentment I felt about having to collect the papers first and then deliver them and then goes through the whole album it would take me that whole album to deliver papers sort of folding them putting them through doors rushing when it got to miserable lie would go going slowly and then when really i need advice i'd like start like come on i need to finish this now i need to finish this paper round like you know like i need to get this at least through the doors you know so and then just getting sort of slowly to the end of the album then i'd be finished and um go, go in and be covered in like you know uh, Newsprint, All of my fingers, my face, everything, just trying to get these papers out of the bag. Plus, it was very dark in the mornings in Scotland then when I was delivering the papers. So the, the very kind man that ran the paper shop said he had a treat for me one day. He said, I've got a treat for you because it's very dark outside. And he pulled out this luminous orange reflective bag. And I was like, what is that? And he was like, it's your new paper bag so that, you know, if you're in pitch black, people can see you. So I had to pretend that I was grateful, put the papers in it, get my old paper bag and put the luminous orange one inside (laughs) it and then walk around with two bags, loads of papers, dump all the papers, then dump the the outside bag and then take the orange bag back to the shop. (laughs) It was very complicated process trying to be cool, even though there was nobody on the street it's seven o'clock in the morning to see me anyway and not anybody that would have cared.
1: <laughs> but you cared, Julie. And that was enough.
2: I still do, Gav. <laughs> Damn that orange bag.
1: Our Depeche
0: Mode cracking up? Well, Martin did disappear to Germany for a week recently and Alan reckons he doesn't know who he is half the time. Certainly sounds a bit spooky, reckons Chris Heath. Yeah, they're mainly banging on about Martin Gore in a dress in this piece.
2: I did not read this piece because I was distracted by how good-looking Alan Wilder is and how I'd never noticed him before because usually I would look at Dave Garn. But if you look bottom left, Alan Wilder, he looks good, doesn't he? He's looking all right,
1: yeah. He's showing his good side there, isn't he, Alan? Yes. Again, I mean, a little bit like the, uh, the Cure piece, which is another Chris Heath piece. Again, they don't seem to be having a great time of it, do they? You know, with um, Martin's just disappeared, and uh, Dave says there's nothing in between. You feel you never feel just alright. You're either extremely happy or you're extremely depressed. There's no one that can understand that unless they're in a successful band, which is very much kind of continuing the theme from the Robert Smith piece earlier on. Yeah, they're they're all just not really having a great time. And then, like you say, there's there's just a lot of chat about Martin and his the kind of clothes that he's wearing. Yeah, it says uh, one thing I've
0: noticed. He reflects is that everybody considers you gay if you dress effeminately, <laughs> but the thing most people seem to miss is that most girls these days—well, most girls I know—seem to prefer effeminate boys.
2: Hmm, kind of insightful, though. I suppose there were a few effeminate boys then, and obviously we had that earlier article of the the communards who were saying that they were different because they were out, mm. out and out in pride. But there were quite a few effeminate boys around then. Uh, Marilyn, Boy George, obviously, uh, Pete Burns, Morrissey, I would put as effeminate, uh, Martin Gore. But there were a lot of sweet, sweet sort of softer boys in the 80s, weren't there, that kind of, kind of softer look that was quite nice and becoming more acceptable.
0: But the thing that always surprised me is that, you know, about um, Dave Gahan, he looked like somebody you'd go to school with or something. And all of a sudden, in, in the late 80s, all the girls were like, oh, Dave God. It's like, when did that happen? He's suddenly in leather trousers, and everybody's
2: like, whoa. But he was like really sweet, like, just can't get enough. And then it was like, behind the wheel. <laughs> it was like, yeah. I'm no longer that Dave. I'm dirty Dave. I'm dark Dave. And all you ladies out there are going to like me. But what a departure, though, to actually make your next single stripped oh yeah <laughs> it's like you know like, we need to make a statement and uh, let's have a, about uh i want to see you stripped down to the bone and then after that all the the lyrics also became increasingly dark and slightly on the edge i mean the lyrics in um a question of time if you examine those lyrics are um well i'll leave you to look them up if you don't know them <laughs> <laughs> they're definitely on the edge and who's on the back? Billy Idol. But how
0: white is his face? And the rest of his body looks really brown. And why has he tucked his hand into his
1: boots?
2: <laughs> well, he's got to put it somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah,
1: but he could be on the outside of his boots. Is it really chilly in the studio, do you think? Well, it's... maybe he was thinking, oh, these boots are a bit bigger, but I can get
0: the fingers down <laughs> yeah. on him. Oh, we should, take, we should take the photo. Oh,
2: You did used to do that, though, when you had wellies on. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody did that when they had wellies on in the winter. You could put your whole hand down the front. That's what Billy's doing.
1: So the other strange thing about this is because he's got a black leather jacket on and black leather trousers, so it makes it look like his his left arm is really really fat. <laughs> it, it kind of blends in with his leg. He's got one one massive fat arm. <laughs>
0: I know what he's doing. I know what he's doing because you wear boots like that. You're gonna wear. You're gonna be wearing two pairs of socks, aren't you? And one of the pairs of socks is is falling down. You know how they do and it's usually oh yeah it's usually the, the first sock so you have to put your hand down in the, mm. in the outer sock to get to the inner sock that's what he's doing he's feeling for the yeah, sock Yeah, it's
2: that sock that's gone down under the heel yeah, yeah I'm
0: just going to pull that back up there we go is it
2: okay if I just hold the sock guys I'm just going to hold the sock up while you take the picture
1: with me fat arm
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh fantastic <laughs>
0: Well, I think that uh, brings a close to uh, this look at Smash It's from October 1985. So what, what are we thinking then, having looked through this? How do we feel about that now, 35 years later? Julie?
2: Uh well, it just took me back. I mean, to be honest, I don't ever really feel like I left 1985. If you listen to any, <laughs> <laughs> if you read any of my books or listen to the radio show, you will know. I am permanently stuck in the eighties and quite happy there. <laughs> for me, it's not nostalgia; it's a way of life. So, um, it's a great issue. I think it is a brilliant. It is one of the that that Morrissey and Pete Bird's interview is spectacular, and uh, worth worth the forty three p alone for that.
1: Definitely, Gav, What what about you? Same as Julie, really. It, it took me back, and particularly as you know, we're recording this in. What may be the middle of lockdown? It may be quite near the beginning of it all. We don't really know, but you know, we're we're a couple of months in, and this was really a very happy place for me. Going back and looking at this again, it was uh, it was quite a little kind of warm, cozy sanctuary of just living in that mid '80s world of uh, eccentric pop stars and the humor and the language. And um, we've done quite a few of these now, and and every issue I look at, I get you know something new from each one. Is kind of rediscovered, and, and for me, it was just that, just that sense of kind of wonder with the pop world and, and the just the excitement of it all, and the fact that you know when that Morrissey and Pete Burns thing came out, it was such a strange thing at the time, and, and it was so funny, and uh, just rediscovering just a little bit of that again was. It was really what I needed, <laughs> to be honest yeah. That and the Arcadia video, you know, were, were enough for me um, But no, Cam,
0: I think you're right It's it's a, it's a happy place, it's a safe place This this period in, in pop music uh, We kind of knew where we were with our crazy pop stars in that they're all a bit weird And we expected them to do weird videos Because they didn't seem weird to us back then It's only looking back now That they just look yeah. <laughs> absolutely crazy
2: Arcadia made sense then Yeah, it did yeah. You didn't Looking question.
0: At- you didn't question it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on that note, Julie, thank you so much for joining us to uh, chat through this edition of the uh, hits, and uh, hope hope you enjoyed it.
2: I loved it. Yeah, you guys are so welcome. I love your podcast. So uh, keep keep going, and um, in future have better guests than me.
0: Okay. <laughs> we,
1: we, we'll try, but it, it, you're going to be a tough act to follow. <laughs> You've said a high bar, Hamill, a high bar.
0: <laughs> and of course, thanks to you for listening. Come and say hello to us at Giddy Pop Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, and also our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll also find the links to the edition of Smash Hits that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists for that extra layer of experience. And we hope you can join us next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. <laughs> Bye.